Hi everyone and welcome to The Interesting, a podcast on how to craft knowledge, skill and expertise. I'm your host, Renelle Noel, research scientist, writer and architect. Tune in, it's pretty interesting. Here's a quote by Calvin Coolidge. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. The slogan, press on, has solved and will always solve the problems of the human race. Calvin Coolidge This quote comes up later in my chat with Joy Johnson. Dr. Joy Johnson is deeply interested in the full stack of engineering electronics from particles to products. An alum of North Carolina State University and a graduate from MIT with a doctorate in electrical engineering and computer science, Joy led mobile development at an MIT-founded music technology startup, AudioCommon. She currently works at Apple in their special projects group and is on the alumni board of the GEM Fellowship Program and other STEM-related nonprofits focused on providing technical and research experiences for minorities and women. Joy is someone I find interesting. Joy, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, thank you. Who is Joy Johnson? Oh boy, that's a big question. I typically would describe myself as a daughter of my parents or a Christian or even an aunt, a sister, all of that. Not necessarily by what I do, because mm-hmm. my family is basically my life. My faith is my life. So I think like those those number one and number two, or as we say, P1 and P2 things are just, <laughs> I'm a Christian and I'm the youngest daughter of four girls to my parents. Right now, I'm a hardware engineer building software, <laughs> but I work at Apple in the hardware engineering special projects group. What was your family's ethos around work and your learning while growing up, whether spoken or unspoken? Um, I think it was more unspoken because both of my parents, when I was growing up, didn't have a college education yet. My mom was working on her college degree. My dad had sixth grade education. So for us, it was learning by doing and learning by watching as they did because my parents were in business together. They had a small waterproofing business and they worked together seven days a week. Eight hours was probably a rare day. But we watched them work. We watched how they put their heart and their soul into making good decisions for their customers while also at the same time trying to manage a family. So I think in terms of learning, it was always work hard. Watch us. We're working seven days a week. We're putting in 10, 12-hour days. We're taking you guys with us so that you see that. But at the same token, they were always pushing us to do well in school. They may not have had the words or the language around what that meant, but it was get all A's. If I came home with a B, my dad was like, I don't understand what happened. <laughs> you need to explain what's going on here. Mm-hmm. 
because I'm doing my job. I'm going to work. Going to school is your job. So if something's not going on there, you need to have told me before I got this B that I'm looking at right now. And so for them, it was more of a generic thing of if you're not getting an A, you're not working hard enough. And if you need help, we'll get you help. I was having a lot of trouble in math in the sixth and seventh grade. And I didn't really have great teachers. So my mom was doing a part-time job at UNCG. So she found me a math tutor. And that person was my tutor all the way through high school. But my dad made me work for the money to pay the tutor. <laughs> there's, a, there's a way to get to that A. And if you can't figure it out, we'll all figure it out. I may not be able to help you with the calculus, but we'll <laughs> find somebody who can. And it needs to get done. So I think it was more of just them ingraining that spirit of excellence. And we used to always say, like, excellence without excuse. Because you don't have an excuse. You got all the time in the world to get these A's, so get to it. I think it was more just learning by doing and just always being hardworking and gracious and doing the best that you could you could possibly do. What do you mean by gracious? I think a lot of times when people find out, oh, you went to MIT, and I know you probably dealt with this too. Oh, you must be a genius and da-da-da-da-da, all of this foolishness, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I used to always say that when people would say, oh, your daughter's really smart or, oh, your daughter's really beautiful or something about one of us. He would teach us that this could easily all be gone. You could easily not have any of the things you have. So in all the things that you have, you have to be gracious and give the glory to the person that it belongs to. And it's typically not you. If I'm at school and I walked in the front office and didn't speak to the secretary, my parents would look at me crazy. This person is here to make sure you get an education. You need to speak. You need to make sure you say thank you. If you're getting tutoring, you say thank you to that person, you follow up with them, and you show respect because all of these people are trying to help you get to where you're supposed to be. But at the same time, they have something to contribute to your life as well. And the people who have helped me the most on this whole engineering journey has been the people who had way less privilege than I had, whether it was janitors or secretaries or the people in the lab, the lab techs who were making sure that I got tool time, making sure that the lights were still on for us, we were working late. Those are the people who made our lives the way it was. And I think my parents, having grown up being those people, understood that we're all a part of this degree. You know, this is like a community degree. (laughs) So at the end of the day, (laughs) you showing graciousness is even less than what you owe these people. Me saying thank you is so small in comparison to what somebody has given me to make sure that I'm able to do what I can do every day. I think that's what I mean by being gracious, just recognizing the privilege that you have and recognizing that this is this is a community thing. This is not, oh, you're just out there thugging it out, getting A's all day and grabbing degrees easily. It's, it's happening because other people have a vested interest in seeing you succeed. Joy currently works at Apple, and I wanted to find out a bit more about that. What do you currently do? Focus on fabricant processes for semiconductors and even novel materials. They don't have to be semiconductor materials. And the group that I'm joining focuses on building processes to make those chips perform in the way that we need for electronics. But right now, I'm doing more um, hardware prototyping, which is focused on products, which are basically Apple wants to build, I don't know, chairs or (laughs) dining room tables that are really interesting and smart and do Apple-like things. And what we do is we build a prototype of that so that we can see how does it actually feel? Is this something that the company wants to build? And then we build it, we show it to a bunch of folks and socialize the idea. And then if our execs are really into it, we beef it up enough that a product team can understand the concept and what it would take to build it. And then we hand it off to a product team. 
So a good example of what our hardware prototyping group does is Apple Watch. At one point, that was a, a prototype. People were like, what if Apple built a watch? Mm-hmm. What would that look like? How would it feel? What would make it Apple versus these other smart watches? What, what are the things that we could provide as an ecosystem company that makes it better for your health or better for your productivity, your work environment? And, and then we built a prototype. We showed it to a bunch of people. We got it to the point where people say, oh, yeah, this is an Apple thing. And then it was handed off to a product team to go off and build a real thing and do all the hard work of manufacturing the product. So that's what I do. What do electrical engineers do? I mean, even from my description of these two jobs, I'm in between. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little bit of everything. I think it's so dope because people always are, oh, computer science, learn to code, which is great and wonderful. And all of us code, right? Everything is just about. And now pretty much any job, you're doing some form of coding, whether it's visual or actually doing some native programming. But the thing that interested me the most about electrical engineers is that building. It's not just, oh, I think this is a good idea. I'm going to make a website or, oh, I think this is a good idea. I'm just going to make an app. You know, I want to actually build something with my own hands. And you could just build something in simulation or in software. You could build it in hardware, but you understand that entire process from soup to nuts, from coming up with an idea all the way to actually shipping a product. And I mean, the range of things that electrical engineers do goes as small as sketching out an idea or designing a circuit that will power a specific type of device all the way through actually trying to integrate all the pieces to make that product work. And even as small as I just want to work on the chip that goes inside the product that's inside the product that you're looking at right now. The great thing about electrical engineers is, yeah, the, the core of it is understanding electronics and how we can use power to create different types of devices, but that has so many forms. You know so much of mechanical engineering because you have to know how the parts work together. You know so much of software engineering and computer science because you have to have software that tells the hardware what to do. You understand so many different pieces of what it takes to build a product that you are the glue that holds all these things together. How did you end up pursuing electrical engineering? When I decided to go to college, I thought, computers were interesting. And I remember my dad saying that one of his clients was an engineer. He was like, oh, you should be an engineer because he was trying to figure out what careers each of us could do so we could take care of ourselves. Right. And he's, oh, I heard lawyers make a lot of money. Tell my sister, you should be a lawyer because she became a lawyer. <laughs> he was telling me, I heard that engineers make a lot of money. You should be an engineer. I was like, that's interesting, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. The good thing was being so close to NC State, I applied to NC State for undergrad and I was really excited about it because one, it's really cheap. You won't go into debt. <laughs> they had a lot of full scholarships. But when you get there, it's, well, what do you do? It's this huge engineering school, but they have tons of other majors. But I think having that leverage of having done so much math work, whether it was in tutoring or teaching other people, I had a good leverage to do basically any degree in science, technology, or engineering, taking that intro to the engineering course. And I thought that was really cool. Seeing my parents do more construction work, but again, that's engineering. Mm-hmm. Figuring out how to do a piping or draining system around someone's home, figuring out how to find the right material that would insulate somebody's basement and seeing my dad basically sketch out schematics. I like the fact that somebody attributed to him something that changed their life, that made their life better. And it was something that he did with his own hands. It wasn't somebody else's ingenuity that you were then selling to someone else. I I liked all those aspects. But yeah, in college, I kind of came in with a blank slate. And as I started to do the the rounds of all the different majors, I was like, this could be cool. Mm -hmm starting out with an open mind and trying it out and then just finding cool projects that were interesting and hard. I just kind of stuck with it. 
Why did you pursue your PhD? I don't think I was, oh, I want to get a PhD in electrical engineering. I think I was in my senior year. I had done mostly jobs because I worked all through college. Because coming from where I came from, you need a job to survive. I wasn't thinking, oh, I have a full scholarship. I don't need to work. So I worked literally every semester except for the last one. And so most of my experience was in more corporate environments and more regular jobs. And then I did a summer research program the summer before my senior year. And I was like, this is cool. This is the first time I actually got to build a device and get into a a clean room, which is basically a facility where you can make nanoscale, really small scale things, whether that's a chip or some other type of device. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is cool. This is really cool. And the advisor that I had there was like, oh, you should go to graduate school. And I was like, I know, thank you. As I was starting to get all the emails when you're going into your senior year about applying for jobs and job fairs and all that, I was like, I don't feel like I have enough skills to even have a job where they pay me to be an engineer. What do I know that can actually be something people can use? And I didn't know that they train you a lot on the job and just thought, I feel like I need more school. And so I took those two things up. I want to do this cool work where I get to drive decisions and build things. Probably need a little bit more education. So I figured if I applied to grad school and I left with a master's, that was fine. I got the additional information that I needed. And then I could go get a job and maybe get a little bit bigger salaries. It was fairly a quick decision that I wanted to do more school. I wanted to learn more. I wanted to deepen my understanding and feel like I could bring value. So for me, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go get a PhD. It was like, oh, I'm going to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And PhD is free, so I'll start with that. (laughs) And then if it doesn't work out, I already had a backup plan. I had a backup job. I had a backup plan for the master's. I was safeguards on all sides. What unique skills and experiences do you think you bring to the table? I don't know. I I think for me, coming from a graduate program, then a startup, I understood both the need to go deep on specific topics, but then with the startup, the the need to go fast. And I think one of the things that we're always struggling with at work is we have this stable of technologies that we can use to implement a specific feature. Mm -hmm. And all the people who have only been on the product side are go fast, go fast, just pick that one. That's cheaper, that's faster, it beats our specs, fine. Whereas all of the academic folks, we are like, wait, (laughs) is this this actually future-proof? Is this actually a technology that really is at the mature level that we can implement it? Like We think a lot deeper about certain things. Mm -hmm. And I think having both of those at the same time helps um, because I'm able to balance both sides. Talk to the people who are more academic and even the designers, they're very much more deep and introspective as well as talk to the engineering teams who've been in the Valley since they were teenagers and don't think about those kind of things. So I think being able to balance and bridge those two worlds has been really helpful for me in my career and something that people kind of look to me to, at least I think they do. Mm -hmm. What do you enjoy most about what you do? I love the fact that I don't do the same thing every day. For the most part, every day is a whole nother challenge. I just like the fact that the environment is super open to new ideas, trying things, failing quickly at those things. You can't fail forever, but I like the fact that they'll allow you that way to just go deep on something that's just experimental or just a hunch, something you think is interesting. And I love the fact that the things that we do will affect millions and millions and millions of people. I like the fact that there's a voice in the room that's mine that I know when I see products in the world, and you probably have this experience as well, you're like, nobody said anything about why this thing didn't detect black faces, or nobody said anything about the fact that 
this device is so big that my hands are too small to use it. I think that's also a really, like special thing that I really am grateful for being able to be in a position to have impact and influence on things that I know millions of people are going to use and not all of them look like the people that I work with. What's at stake if you're not in the room? I think what's at stake is that you don't have people who have those challenges or have those issues with access or have a certain perspective about how they use things, whether it's a cultural lens, whether it's an ethnic lens, whether it's a gender lens, then we're taking our idea of what we think they want and putting it into a product, which means if you don't understand the challenges that people at varying levels have, then you're designing for what you know. I think what's at stake is excluding people who could not only use our products, but could also make our products better. What's at stake is excluding people, but also the rest of the world missing out on those things that could be built. Can you share with us an experience that was challenging and tell us how you overcame it? I guess I should explain something. <laughs> so for me, I think I'm super, super amped by any challenge. Anytime somebody said I couldn't do something, I was gonna try to do that. I get excited and passionate about things that people say I can't do because I always had to kind of prove myself whether that was in my family or even in my, my, my professional life. Most of the things that I've done have been things that I was afraid of or were just going to be super challenging. And those kind of opportunities I just thrive off of. There's been challenges literally everywhere. So I think you just have to decide what you want. Mm -hmm. And then after you make that decision, all the other decisions are micro decisions. If you decide you're going to stay in school, all that other little stuff that you go back and forth about is squashed because you're like, I decided I'm going to stay. Tell us, what has been your approach to how you craft knowledge, skill, and expertise? I think it's always been, one, driven by the thought that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Yep. So it just made me start to build these frameworks and these structures in which I started to map out what I didn't know. When I started graduate school and I decided I was going to do more nanofabrication and more process technology work, now i got to scope out everything that there is to know. <laughs> I would just make these graphs of, all the different areas, different type of materials, different type of devices I could go into. And then when I look at my field, okay, what are all the things people are working on? And that's literally combing certain journals. I was going through it all on paper. And then once I figured out what my problem was going to be for my, my dissertation, then I went even deeper on that. Let me sketch out what people have thought about even anywhere near this question. So you have two camps, the things that you know, and then the things that you don't know about a topic. But there's some things that you clearly know that you don't know. So there's some known unknown. Mm -hmm. And then there's some things that are unknown unknown. I don't even know what I don't know about this topic. <laughs> it's brand new to me. I got to get there. I got to ask a lot of questions to figure out what things live in that bucket. Mm -hmm. Always helping myself by having an idea of where the holes were in my understanding such that I could ask the right questions, such that I could find somebody who did know so that as I started to learn more, I was able to fill in those holes and then make more holes where I needed to figure out more things about the topic. But always having a general scaffolding helped me to feel more secure because nobody knows everything about right. something unless you've been doing it for 80 years, 90 years. How have moments of struggle or failure prepared you for where you are today? That's a good question. 
I think I'm still finding out. I was in a startup right out of grad school and my advisor kept saying, no, Joy, don't do startup. And I loved it. I loved it. Like I love the guys I worked with. I love the stuff that we were building. I love the fact that I got to do some modeling, but in a different field completely from what I did. But we sell the company. We were trying, but trying to sell a music technology startup is very hard. I'm just okay. telling you now. That's a no-known <laughs> for you now. <laughs> but it was so hard. And I mean, I sacrificed like crazy. Literally had two jobs in addition to working in the startup when I had a PhD and I could have easily just applied for a job and got a job out here. But it opened me up to the world of investment and venture capital and helping other tech companies. But I don't know what the the negative effects are. I think they'll they'll come even further out in my career. I asked Joy to tell us her approach to navigating some of these spaces as a minority and a woman of color. This is what she said. My coping mechanism has been primarily to focus on the work. If I want to thrive and do well and do my best work, I don't think of myself as representing the entire race of Black people from the beginning of time Mm -hmm. or every single woman they would ever meet. I think about myself as representing myself. If I'm not doing good work, I don't want to be known for being slack. I don't want to be known for being lazy in my approach or not creative or not focused. I want to be known for doing really excellent work and being inventive and being creative. So I think the way I've been able to thrive in those environments where I don't feel like I'm a part of the group or is different is focusing on the work, talking about the work. I just focus, laser focus Mm -hmm. on the work. And I think the hard part about the only one thing for me is even amongst certain black people that have the same pedigree in terms of that are in engineering or in these higher degree programs, I don't come from that. I can't even relate to some of them on that level because they come from where everybody has a college degree. They come from families that are super well off. And they would even have looked down on my family. My grandmother was a maid her entire life. They don't even know what that looks like. So even when I got to MIT, I was like, all these black people, they're like from another world. Like, I don't even know. I don't even understand this. These people are incredible. Like I said, the thing I focus on is the work. When I choose my manager or my advisor, is this a person that I can do my best work for? When I'm at work every day and maybe something comes up or some weird joke comes up, if I engage in this, is it going to distract me from what I'm trying to get done today? If it is, okay, I need to just remove myself. For me, making that one decision that I'm going to focus on the work and I'm going to do an excellent job mm-hmm. makes all those other decisions easy. It's a very unfair thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very singular story to talk about being the only one. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody has a different experience with that is what I'm trying to say. And for me, the best way to deal with it is to focus on the work. And when people respect you on a work level, it's much easier to deal with all the other complexities of their personalities, you know? I think just finding what that main thing is that you're focused on. What is your North Star? And if your North Star is to understand black holes, focus on that. Don't focus on all the people that are around you that are stopping you from doing that. You focus on what that thing is you're trying to do and build. Your email signature contains a quote by Calvin Coolidge, which I'll place in the show notes. It talks about persistence and pressing on. Why is this quote important to you? Something about it when I read that the fact that talented people aren't, I think sometimes we put them on a pedestal and a platform that this person is just talented. That's why I can't even do what they do. It starts to put people in a place not accessible to you. 
that's why I hate when people are like, oh, are you, you went to MIT? Because it automatically creates a barrier between what they, they can do and what they feel like I can do. And I know so many talented people, insanely talented people who did not go to MIT, who do not have a college degree mm-hmm. and are able to do as much, if not more than I'm able to do. And the reason that they're able to do that is because they are laser focused, committed, fiercely motivated to get something done. And there's so many people that get left on the wayside and people in Silicon Valley always say the survivors are the ones that win, not the people who are the tech superstar. No, no, no. The person who made it decided that they were not going to leave this valley until they got their their goals achieved, whether that was starting a company or building a product or patenting something or whatever. It's like the people who decided, I will keep going. And it's crazy because people think that it's just, it's just talent. It's just that kid that went to Harvard at 12, or it's just that kid who's this savant. But it's, it's not that. So much more than that. The sheer persistence and the sheer determination to do something and to get it done will get you so much further. And it's not that it, that it, it may not get you to where you want to get with just that alone. Yeah, there's going to be people along the way and resources and all this other stuff. But without that, you can't do it. The great thing that I like a lot of people who I admire, and not so much that I admire Calvin Coolidge, but man, that ability to just finish something. And to doggedly go after something is something that I see in people who I really admire and who've been able to achieve stuff without these trappings of success, whether that was money or degree or the right skin color or the right gender or whatever. These are people who are able to finish well without those things because they decided, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to keep doing it until I get it done. It's so many people who I know who graduated from MIT with me who are not able to do anything because they're paralyzed by fear or they're just being lazy or they just feel like it's too much effort. I'm not going to do it. You've got to just keep going at something. It may be hard. You may not have the genius. You may not have the talent. But that is the thing that's going to get you to where you want to go. That's the principal thing. Joy, one of the things I know you for is for that hashtag finish well. What is hashtag finish well about? Finish well is a thing that's personal to me. Like I said, my dad basically raised us and he he was just such a great man, but he passed away in 2012 of cancer. And one of the things he used to always beat over our heads, tell us every day, you just do your best. You don't take any excuse to not do something well, even if it was something as small as cleaning the kitchen. He didn't play that whole, oh, I'm just going to wipe off the counters and I'm done. He's like, no, you do the whole job. You do the whole job. If somebody asks you to do something, they should be able to count on you. Your words should mean something. That You're not going to take any shortcuts. You're not going to do it the easy way just because it's faster. You're going to do it to the best of your ability, no matter how small the job is. The way in which he taught us those small lessons about cleaning, about getting good grades, about working hard, those things were things that he did in his life. And maybe he didn't vocalize them, but actually being that person, finishing well for him meant finishing sober. Finishing well means not only finishing because you did something right, but because you did it to your fullest ability and with that gracious heart. What's one thing you want us to know? I don't think that people recognize how much of a privilege being a a technically educated person is. Being a child of people who were service in the service industry, whether they were maids or cooks or doing construction work or whatever, all the way to being the engineer in the building that my dad would be putting the flooring in or the roof just because you're an engineer here and this person is a technician or just because you're an engineer here 
and this person is supporting you. Their job to get our equipment to the right place at the right time and get it set up properly is just as important as us being able to get it working. Mm -hmm. And I really have a hard time trying to help myself and those around me understand that this is a privilege. Us being able to come to work and get paid to think is an extreme privilege. The person who's not doing this deserves it just as much as we do. Mm-hmm. And I just try to remind myself, remind my mentees, remind my mentors, remind my coworkers of just how important it is to be mindful of the fact that this is a privilege mm-hmm. and we can share that privilege with people who don't have it mm-hmm. in ways that aren't patronizing, in ways that aren't charity, mm-hmm. and we can share it easily. They, they don't even notice the invisibleness of people who don't have that privilege. They've never spoken to the secretary. They've never spoken to the lunch lady. They've never spoken to the security guard. Mm-hmm. But we're all in this community together, and we all have so much to offer one another. But in a place of privilege, we have the ability to change so many things so easily. Just being really mindful of that helps us to make the entire environment better for everyone. And not only that, it also gives us the opportunity to knowledge share amongst each other because the person who's a technician in that fab in Intel in Oregon somewhere, they know so much that they can help you design a new tool right. that's going to save the company money. Right. But if you aren't asking them, then how would you ever know that? I think that so many people sweep those floors and nurse those children and got in those construction pants every morning in the heat in North Carolina <laughs> such that I could have this privilege. Right. Who am I to not share that with those same people? Just your parents giving you, like, say your parents gave you, you know, $20,000 so you can go to school. And then you're like, no, nah, I don't want to tell you what I'm doing at school right. or how my grades are. Like, that's right. crazy. It's insane to me. So that is something that I am very conscious of on a day-to-day basis and always looking for opportunities to bridge the gap. Whether it's making sure I speak every single time I see someone that's in that position and it looks like nobody is speaking to them. Mm-hmm. I was in this conference two weeks ago to volunteer mm-hmm. and there was another guy that was there presenting and it was him and his brother, these twins, Hadi and Avi Partovi, I think is how you pronounce their names. Mm-hmm. These guys are uh, investors in Silicon Valley. He was like, it was an intern that told them it was our first idea for the best investment we've ever made. <laughs> it would not have been for that intern. They would not be millionaires right now. Wow. People always ignore the interns and like stuck them in a closet somewhere, told them, you know, here's your job and then we'll be back in three months. But ignoring somebody just because they're younger than you or less experienced than you, you just lost the opportunity to understand your target market. These are the people who are going to be buying your product. Why would you not give that person the same respect that they're giving you? What do you hope your impact on this world would be? I just hope that I don't leave this world having not taken advantage of every opportunity that I had to help somebody else. I hope that I'd never miss an opportunity to help someone who I physically can help in the skin I'm in, in the context I'm in, and able to help that person. I hope I never miss that opportunity because I'm caught up thinking about the wrong things or thinking about myself. So I hope that I leave the world having touched the people that I was supposed to touch, help the people I was supposed to help, and build the things I was supposed to build. When you write your book, what will it be about? Oh, God. (laughs) The the book that I would write will probably be a collection of short stories just about how wild life is, but also how beautiful it is when you get to the end of something. 
even just telling my dad's sobriety story. That's such a beautiful story mm-hmm. of being persistent and being so focused and saying, God, I'm not going to live that life anymore. Mm-hmm. Seeing my sisters, the way that they've persisted and getting things done, seeing friends, you included, seeing you guys drive in the world mm-hmm. is a miracle in and of itself. And I think just sharing some of those short stories mm-hmm. and letting people in on a little bit of those stories that people don't like to tell. I ended up coming to San Francisco for this job, not knowing that my grandmother, who I thought spent her whole entire life in North Carolina, used to live in San Francisco. (laughs) She told me when she came, she was literally a maid and what they call a wet nurse, a woman who takes care of their children, nurses the children for this white family. And she moved here at the same age I was when I moved here to work as a domestic in their house. And now I moved here, I got my own place, I'm an engineer, I have my own career. But when she was here, that was the context in which she was here. But she got to come back 50 years later to see me here. Those kind of stories, they sound bad when they start because maybe it started from a bad place, but there's such an ending to it that's hilarious or beautiful or refreshing that people just, I think they would get a kick out of some of them. Any closing thoughts? No, I'm just excited that you're doing this. This will be cool. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for you to record yours so we can hear <laughs> all the things because we haven't heard yet. But I think it's just beautiful. I love storytelling. I love hearing about how people are moving through this life. This is going to be great. It'll right. be awesome. Four key points that stood out to me in my chat with Joy were one, Remember to be gracious and to say thank you. Two, focus on the work. Let your good work speak for you. Three, persistence and determination are key. These qualities are going to take you where you want to go. And the last, but by no means least, finish well. In everything you do, do to the best of your ability. Strive for excellence without excuse. Joy, thanks again for sharing your time, knowledge, experience, and your stories with us. Oh, you're welcome. And to everyone out there, keep crafting knowledge, skill, and expertise. Thank you for listening.